There's this uh, really, really great uh, Christian writer who um, is dead now, British, Scottish actually. He um, was uh, a bishop, the first bishop in uh, South India, and his name is Leslie Newbegin. You should look him up and read his books. Leslie, double S-L-I-E. And he, he asked this question and he gave this answer. This is the question first. It's a good question. You would have thought of this question yourself. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? It's a fair question. And he gave this answer. He said, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Now, this quote comes from his great book, his most famous book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, which came out in the 1980s. And he has a very famous chapter called The Congregation as a Hermeneutic of the Gospel, where the word hermeneutic, it's a new word for you for today to use in Scrabble, means interpretation. So his point being is, is this. If you want to... Um, you want to understand what the gospel is, well, the, one of the best ways is to look at a church congregation and see it in action. If outsiders, if non-Christian people want to understand what it is that Christians believe, they can just look at Christians in their local congregational setting and they should be able to see the gospel in action. Now, of course, the problem is if the congregation has a distorted gospel, for example, in Australia, we might have a distorted gospel which says something which overemphasizes or, or idol, has an idol of leisure and, and, and um, comfort because Australians love leisure and comfort. Then you will also potentially see that in the congregation if you observe, if you look closely. You'll see um, men and women, old and young, not necessarily relating to each other in a loving and sacrificial way if it, if it impedes, if it stops them from having le leisure and, con and comfort, you see. So, so that could be observable too. On the other hand, if the congregation believes in the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to quote the passage, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, as it says in verse 14, then you will see the following characteristics. According to Leslie Newbegin, you'll see this in the life of the congregation. If you look at it, you'll see, number one, six things. It will be a community of praise. Two, it will be a community of truth. Three, it will be a community that does not live for itself, but will have a concern for the needs of the neighborhood. Four, it will, it will be a community where men and women are prepared for ministry to the world. Five, it will be a community of mutual responsibility. So if the church is to be effective in advocating and achieving a new social order for the nation or for the people, the neighbourhood, then they have to be that new social order as well. And sixthly, um, Newbegin says the church will be a community of hope. And it's this fifth characteristic, a community of mutual responsibility, that this passage in Titus 2 really focuses in on. It looks at men and women, old and young, and even the slaves, and how they can be part of this new social order and, and, and interact with each other in the local congregational setting. And the idea is, the main kind of 
theme of this talk and this chapter is that the world outside the church will observe the church members relating to each other in a radically different kind of way, in a sacrificial, in a humble way, in a respectful way. And by observing that, they will be attracted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. People will say, I've heard about this Jesus on the crossing and I don't necessarily get it. But what I see in Mary Creek Anglican or what I see in that local church in Crete, in, this, in the case of this passage, is remarkable and I want to find out more. This is a gospel which Paul over and over again says, yeah, it's a weird thing. I admit it. He says it's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks and it's offensive to inner North Melburnians. So that's what we're looking at today. And in the previous chapter last week, if you've read it um, or if you were here last Sunday or listened to the podcast, Paul, we find out that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was instructing his son in the gospel, that's how he describes him, Titus, to go around to the churches in this island of Crete and to sort out the mess because there were all these new churches that had started and Crete was a hedonistic culture, it was like a port island and there was a hustle and bustle and lots of partying and the, the young church had got, um, were very much part of that culture and the elders and the overseers of the church were very much blending in with the, the Cretan culture around them, being drunks and, and, and you know, womanising and, and all the terrible, lots of terrible things and Paul's saying you've got to go and sort out the leadership of these churches or else they're going to not have a chance. And he begins chapter 2 by saying to Paul, um, don't let them, you know, in chapter 1 he says, don't let these elders and overseers teach the false gospel or so they won't, why won't be a true church? And he says to Titus at the start of chapter 2, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And he gives his attention to the relationship between the Christians, especially in their home. So first of all, what I'm going to do is look at what it says to the older men and women. And then secondly, I'll look at what it says to the younger men and women and the slaves as well. And I'm, I'm intentionally grouping the younger men and women and the slaves together. And you'll see why when we get there. So let's first have a look at what it says about older men and women. It basically says this, older people in the congregation have extra responsibility to drive this new social order. Look at verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, who is Paul talking about when he says older men, older women? It's one of those words, older, that's relative, isn't it? Uh, when I first started leading the youth and the young adults congregation at St. Hilary's, it was called the 7pm congregation, we had, you know, half of them were at high school and the other half were uni students and young, young adults, sort of up, people up to sort of their mid-20s initially, later on got older. But anyway, what used to happen was, uh, you know, each year there'd be people aged 22, 23 coming, knocking my office and they'd take me out for coffee and, and they'd say to me, look, I just feel really old here. I'm, I just look around and I just know this is for the youth, this congregation, and I'm like, I'm 23 years old and like... You know, I'm, I've moved, you know, I've grown out of this, you know. And, um, you know, I can understand where they're coming from because, yeah, like, it, it's, it is weird when you rock up to church and you're 23 years old and then there's a bunch of year nines giggling in the corner and you can sort of think, have I moved on from this? 
But literally, these, this age group, I, you know, especially when I first started out, were the oldest in the congregation, so I can understand their issue of feeling old. And the reality is, it was a fair enough thing to say because if you're 23 years old, you need someone who's older than you in the congregation to look up to. You, you need to look up to people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s um, to inspire you, to, to show you the way. And, and, that, and actually, in hindsight, years later, I think it is one of the big flaws in, the, in churches that carve people off based on age groups, um, that, that you miss out on that intergenerational relating. So what we started doing is actually inviting people into the congregation who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s to be in small groups and just to be mentors. And it, and it actually stopped the 23-year-olds thinking that they were the oldest people there. Now, in the Cretan church, old actually we think probably means in their early 50s because of the um, lifespan at that time. If you kind of reached 50, you were an elder automatically. And Paul says that these older men and older women had a special role in the congregation and in the household. They are literally elders. You, you know, you've arrived. You're there now. So you guys, he's saying to the Cretan elders, you need to act like elders and embrace your role. You've got there, so you may as well embrace who you are. Just like he mentioned in the previous chapter to the elders and overseas who have an official role in the congregation, they had to embrace Christian character, Christ-like character. Uh, in verse 2, Paul instructs Titus to teach the old men to embrace Christ-like character, that they should be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. And you see that phrase there, faith, in love, and endurance, which is, you know, it was a famous Christian sort of motto, usually said faith, love, and hope. But by saying endurance, it just emphasizes you, you are elders now, just keep going till you die as strong Christians, basically. Run the race, finish the race well. These are the cardinal Christian virtues. And similarly to the old, older women, I won't say old women, but the older women, verse 3, likewise teach the old, older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine but to teach what is good. And to be reverent just means to be holy. And to be holy, it actually kind of means to be like a priestess. Because uh, to be holy means to be like a priest. Um, so have the demeanour that is required for temple service. You know, if you're going to stand there between God and the people, then you've got to act like that. And and there's, a, and there's a theme in the teaching of the New Testament that all Christians are priests now. It's a priesthood of all believers. The Apostle Peter says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the older men and women are, are to be reverent. They're to be worthy of respect, self-controlled, um, acting like priests. And, you know, sometimes when you read these kind of lists of characteristics and descriptions of men and women, you can think, oh, it seems a bit archaic, you know, this sort of gender stereotype. But then other times you read these lists and it, it hits you hard at how relevant and blunt it is. And I especially just want to focus on the alcohol bit. Uh, because the stuff that it says about alcohol to old men and old women, temperate for old men and not addicted to much wine for old women, basically saying the same point, um, 
could be written to the Australian church in 2017. In the late 19th century, um, the evangelical church in the West, in America and Britain and Australia, um, were, had a great shift that occurred about, about its attitude to alcohol because there was a lot of domestic violence and violence, among, especially amongst young men. So a group of um, evangelical Christian women rose up and formed uh, the Christian Temperance Union, uh, the, yeah, which was a um, kind of like a ministry to, to try and combat the issue of violence in society that was caused by alcohol and poverty as well. And um, this was a very successful movement. They, they, they were able to lobby, actually, what, this, this group um, is the beginnings of a whole lot of things. It was the beginnings of the women's suffragette movement, so bringing the vote to women in America and England and Australia, and then also to feminism. So the first feminists were actually evangelical Christian women, and I'm not just saying that as a Christian minister is trying to kind of spin history, that is something I learned in queer studies um, at Melbourne Uni. This is actually true. These women grew up and rose up and said, we've got to do something about alcohol. So it made sense that by the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century, the evangelical church across the Western world were essentially against alcohol. And this lasted for a long time. And, and basically, you didn't drink if you're an evangelical Christian. And when my parents were young, um, in the, you know, when I was young, sorry, and my parents were young in the 1970s, that still was a thing, you know, like mainly, you were, it, wasn't a, you were, it wasn't illegal, you know, in, for Christians, but Christians didn't sort of say it was completely banned, but generally they didn't drink. But then the baby boomers, of course, started to kind of rebel, rebel against their parents' conservatism in the church and started to bring alcohol back again. Um, but still, you can go into certain church cultures today in Australia and alcohol is frowned upon, especially in Aboriginal Christian communities. So it is, a, it is taboo in Aboriginal Christian communities in Australia to bring out alcohol. You just don't do it. And you can understand why. It's such a problem in these communities that the Christians are like, what are you doing bringing alcohol to this party? You know. Um, but if you think about our church setting, times have changed, haven't they? The pendulum has swung. And so, you know, it's, it's common for, you know, people in this church and, and, and others of our friends to have a good cellar at home, you know. And, I, and I'm not saying there's anything essentially wrong with that either. The Bible does not teach abstinence. Titus 2 doesn't say teach the older men and the older women to not drink at all. It just says to be self-controlled. Jesus drunk wine. But perhaps maybe what we could do is start to think about ourselves and how much alcohol we drink. According to the Bureau of Statistics, the average Australian drinks 9.7 litres of pure alcohol a year. So I'm not talking about litres of beer or whatever, litres of pure alcohol, uh, which means it's up 180 mils from last year. So, and, and the University of Queensland study into Australian drinking shows that it is actually middle-aged women who drink the most in Australia. 13% um, of women aged 45 to 49 are drink, uh, 59 are drinking an average of more than two glasses of wine a night. And I understand what it's like. You, you get home after a busy day and you've done, you know, you, you, you work, full-time work, and then you come home, you've got family life, um, and you're exhausted, and you want to reward yourself with a couple of glasses of Shiraz, you know. 
a um, couple of glasses of vino from the old um, cellar downstairs or whatever you've got, or, you know, if you've got it downstairs in your, in your house, that is. Um, but, but there's also a sense in which perhaps we medicate ourselves as Australians, you know, we, we self-medicate the stresses of life away. And we model to our kids something that's not quite right, you know. And I understand this. I love my glasses of vino. Um, and this year I've certainly um, tried to cut down a lot on, on my own alcoholic consumption. Like I've, I realised suddenly I'd become one of those Australians who, who, who just sort of, you know, just have a glass here and a glass there during the week and, and just sort of spread it out through the week. Um, and, you know, it's not a big problem, but like what are, do I really need to be doing this? And as I've cut it right back, I feel like I sleep a lot better. Um, it's helped me lose a bit of weight as well. My, my personal trainer said strains would cut a third of their weight loss issues down just by drinking a lot less. And so I tried it and I was like, oh, this is great, you know. Um, but actually, that's not the main reason you do it. The main reason's in the passage. The main reason you, you aim for temperance or you, you be, be temperate and you not be addicted to much wine is because of what it says in verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So the same grace that God gives us in Jesus Christ that saves us also shapes our ethics and our, uh, our daily living as we wait in anticipation for Jesus to return. Grace teaches us to examine ourselves and go, well, I don't really need that. Or maybe that's not helping me in my discipleship walk. Grace teaches us to say yes to making good decisions about how we are to live as well. God has done so much for us as he's given us his gift of love and forgiveness. So we should do what we can for others. And that includes what we consume. And the whole purpose of God's grace embodied in Jesus Christ is to create a people for himself that are characterized by an eagerness to do good. See, in verse 13, we wait for the blessed hope, the, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is God, good. So God is preparing us for eternity a holy community, a new social order of God's children that does not need to medicate itself each night at the levels of Australian alcoholic consumption. And, and there's this good news here. I mean, we could keep looking at the different characteristics that Paul describes about older men and older women. They all kind of make sense. And there's really good news here which is that in, in this Australian culture that's, and Western culture that's obsessed with youthfulness, um, there's, a, there's a lot of good news for, the, for older people. As we get older, we should stop buying the lie that we are passing our use by date. But rather, we've got this important calling from God to embrace this new way of living, to be a model and an example to younger men and younger women on how to live. Your health might even slow you down, you might feel culturally out of touch, but you are not limited as a disciple and an elder in the congregation. So you need to know that you set an example 
And as you mentor younger people at church, you are helping us live out this gospel. As you are worthy of respect, as it says in verse 2, you are helping the mission of our church. As you teach what is good, as it says in verse 3, you are helping us to be, be that new social order that Leslie Newbigin talks about. As you are sound in your faith, in love and in endurance, you are doing the ministry of mission, making the gospel attractive and believable to outsiders. So let me encourage you, no matter who you are, how old you are, um, that the older you are, actually, the better you are at doing this, the more you've got to offer, that you should take an interest in those here that are younger than you. Everyone from the little kids, the, the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds, the teenagers, the 40-year-olds, even the 50-year-olds need someone to look up to. Take an interest. Embrace it. Bring them into your house. You know, um, invite families over and young people over and take an interest in what people are doing. This is actually your calling that God has given you. Older people have a special responsibility. Let's look at younger people. Secondly, it doesn't matter how young or how low your social position is in the hierarchy of the congregation or the, or the society, you have an important role in living out these gospel relationships. So Paul yeah, gives his attention to these people lower down the social rank, young men, young women, and slaves. Now, if you're like me, as you get to these bits in Titus 2 that talk about young women especially and slaves, your Bachelor of Arts alarm bells go, woo, 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 religious, uh, you know, oppressive texts in the Bible that we need to take out and just embar be embarrassed about and put aside and reinterpret and, you know, and you start feeling tense. But the thing is, if we had to think, I can see why you do that, but look closely. In actual fact, what Paul is saying here is the very opposite of what your alarm bells are telling you. Your alarm bells are telling you, here is a passage that is oppressing women and promoting slavery. Wrong. Let me show you. Paul is actually fleshing out and applying the Sermon on the Mount here. He's showing that in the kingdom of God, the lowest people in the social scale, young men who the Old Testament often describes as foolish, young women who are housebound and don't have the same kind of um, voice in the culture as we do now, and slaves who completely have restricted rights, even slaves, they all have an important place in the kingdom of God, in the church, and can all have an effective ministry as ambassadors for Jesus. Even slaves who have very limited rights, the way you relate to your masters, says this passage, can actually highlight the beauty of the gospel, making the craziness of Jesus on the cross seem plausible and attractive to outsiders. Ironically, um, you know, if you are like me, study, you know, I actually did study feminism and queer theory at Melbourne Uni. I studied post-colonialism. I studied um, some psychology as well. Uh, I, was, I was taught to look for the power structures and to, and to flatten them with my neo-Marxist training, you know, to bring the lower classes up and the upper classes down and to show that we're all the same. If, if you were to read this passage, you would to see that actually this is actually doing that. It's actually lifting up those 
who are lower down the social scale in first century Judaic and Greek culture. So Paul tells Titus to teach the older women to teach the younger women to embrace these six characteristics, to love their husbands, because most young women, and we're talking young, young, like 15, 16 years old, they get married, most most in this culture, they love their children to be controlled and, and pure, and this is the most common way the, the Christian virtuous woman is described in the Bible, probably just means chaste, um, to be busy at home. And it's, it, this is not an affirmation that women have to be housewives. It's not doing that. It's just Paul's just speaking into the, the culture that he, is, he, he lives amongst. To be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. He's, he's setting a standard which, which is conditioned in part by the cultural norm of what was expected of a, of a good wife in Greece at that time. That the younger women's place in Christ was, was to be found in the home. It's not saying that women have to be housewives. It's saying whatever your context is, live with integrity, honesty, self-control, kindness, and generosity. Embody the fruit of the Spirit. Treat your husband with respect and honour. Young women should live out their faith in this way, in humility and purity, for the sake of the gospel and for how it will be viewed by outsiders so that no one will malign the word of God. And, you know, let's fast forward to 2017. If you are a young woman, perhaps you are working a busy job. Perhaps you might have a young family. Um, perhaps you were driving your kids around during the week. Um, perhaps you were doing chores at home. Perhaps you were doing a big executive job. Perhaps all of this, this all, it still applies to you. It still applies to you. Just because you are exhausted doesn't mean you cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Being busy actually exposes you to temptations. It exposes you to want to self-medicate and become addicted to much wine. Uh, it, it exposes you to being short-tempered. It exposes you to judgmentalism, to, to being selfish, because you say, I've had a big week. I don't have time to help people out at church. You know, everyone should understand that I'm a tired person and I've got a lot on my plate. But I'm sorry, that is not the Christian life that we are called to. The key phrase you have to keep saying to yourself, and I'm not just talking to young women here, I'm talking to us all, is death to self. Just say that over and over again, death to self. If I actually want to live the fruitful, exciting Christian life, I need to die to myself I need to carry my cross and I need to put other people's needs before my own. Make that the motto of your life and you'll see your Christian life come alive. Find your life by losing your life. Take up your cross. God has blessed you with a job. God has blessed you perhaps with a house. God has blessed you perhaps with a family. All these blessings aren't an excuse to back away from living the Christian life. Rather, respond to the grace shown to you in Jesus that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Realise your role in this new social ethic is to show generosity of spirit and self-control and respect to all of those around you, your children, um, your husbands and wives, your, your parents, your friends, your congregation members. And verse 6 and 7, it goes on and it talks to the young men, and it seems to be very brief, doesn't it? 
teach the young men to be self-controlled because that's all they can manage, you know. But Paul is actually telling, telling Titus then, he says, go on and model to them genuine Christian behavior. So actually the onus is on Titus now. They should be able to look to him and know how to live in a godly way. They should be able to see what integrity of life looks like to not be corrupted. The younger men should be able to see what godly speech looks like, speech that cannot be criticised. But the purpose of this is not only so that they will grow up to be godly in their character, but also so that the ones in the congregation who are corrupted, the false teachers, they won't be able to criticise you, Uh, criticise Titus, that is, for his leadership, because they might try and undermine him. But if if Titus is, is living a godly life, then there's nothing they can pin on him. So young husbands and wives who are here, I just want to give you something. You should realise that the way you relate to each other at home and in public, people are watching and it actually has an impact on on what people think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're always bickering, if you're tearing each other, pulling each other down, criticising, making comments on the side, if this is you, then you do have a problem that you need to deal with. It can start as a joking thing, but then it can go a bit too far to the point where people feel like that you're not acting in a loving way around you. Apart from it being bad for your marriage, it's bad for the church community. When Christian married couples struggle to love and respect each other, the church congregation suffers. So you should go to counselling and you can come and talk to me and I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. And don't feel ashamed of that. Get over your middle class shame to, to say, I've got a problem in my marriage. Most marriages go through periods where they need to go to counselling. It's really normal. It's much better than you pretending that everything's going okay and really you're struggling, trying to save face with your friends and family. God wants our relationships to be healthy and vibrant and loving and motivated by Christ-like grace. And when we live out our relationships in grace, we make the gospel more attractive to outsiders. All, all these commands have been based on age and, and, and sex, and now it's directed to slaves. And no, this is not an affirmation of slavery. Paul is just telling the slaves that actually exist there that even you can have a great and amazing ministry, even the lowest person in society. You might find your, Paul himself was in prison when he's writing. He's a prisoner. He knows what, this, what it is to be low in society. Even you can be an ambassador for the gospel. We assume these slaves are probably living in Christian households, or they might not have, but they probably were. They're to, they're to give satisfaction to their masters. And this sounds like a, a harsh and difficult path, but being a Christian disciple isn't a free, easy ride. It's, it's, it's actually sometimes really, really hard. They're not to talk back to them. They're not to steal from them. These are the two big temptations for slaves because they were entrusted with money. The Christian slave who is dishonest with their master's money, affirms to the outside world that the Christian gospel makes no difference to your life. The Christian slave who is honest with their master's money actually promotes the beauty of the gospel. They actually make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. And so Paul wants the Christians in Crete, the old, the young, even those lowest in social hierarchy, to stand in contrast with the Cretan culture, the Cretan reputation, so that the outsiders won't blaspheme or malign the, the gospel, but also so that outsiders will be attracted to, to it. So just to finish, no matter who you are here this morning, old or young, 
um, male or female, important in Australian social rankings and not important. God has called you all to work together in gospel harmony, in your households, in this community, in your workplace, in our church. And we do this in response to the grace God has shown us in Jesus and so that the gospel is attractive to outsiders. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this uh, encouraging passage and that um, we all have a role to play. We pray that we can live this out. Amen.